we come on to the chapter uh, on the aggregates. This is um, in the uh, Dhammanupasana, the fourth section of Satipatthana. And this is the second part of it, which is the uh, contemplation of the five khandhas. The five aggregates. The present Satipatthana exercise examines the five aggregates which constitute the basic components that make up, quote, oneself, unquote. The instructions are, He knows, such is material form, such its arising, such its passing away, such is feeling, such its arising, such its passing away, such is cognition, such its arising, such its passing away, such are volitions, such are their arising, such their passing away. Such is consciousness, such its arising, such its passing away. <clears throat> Before going any further, then uh, just to uh, look at the kind of terminology that we have, um, the word kanda in Pali, uh, regularly translated as aggregate, it's one of those strange kind of Bud Buddhist vernacular terms that being aggregate, aggregate, in, in English that means the kind of gravel or, or rock that you buy from a from a builder's yard to fill potholes in your in your drive or to mix concrete with so it's like what 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 are we talking about here so it's it's acquired a particular usage in buddhist terminology which it doesn't really have in in ordinary english uh, terminology english usage so the word kanda literally means like a lump or a heap, a pile, a group. It's a very uh, informal, sort of everyday household term. So you can call it, you can call them the five heaps or the five lumps, the five groups. It's it's uh, one of those um, terms that the Buddha used a very ordinary, uh, say, common um, uh, expression uh, for a uh, sort of specific area of of Dhamma teaching. And so, uh, <clears throat> even though the aggregate is a bit of a strange English word, and I'm sure in your various languages of, of uh, German and Portuguese and Spanish and Thai and Sinhalese and whatever, that uh, you have your own kind of ways of representing it. But essentially, it just means a group. It's like there are, there are these five rough divisions. So uh, you have the, them in two basic parts, the, the form side, the rupa, um, uh, Rupakanda, and then the Namakandas. The 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 uh, first one is the physical dimension, and the second one is the mental, uh, non-physical dimension. So uh, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. The the latter four, they're all the Namakandas, the mind groups, and then Rupakanda is the the first one, the form or the body, the material, uh, you know, material reality uh, group. So it's a, as I often say, it's just a convenient way of slicing the pie, uh, dividing up mind and body, uh, patterns of experience. Um, and the, 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 there's a, um, it's just like if you were down at the builder's yard and you might see the fine sand and coarse sand and the gravel and coarse gravel and then uh, the, uh, the kind of broken um, bricks and such like. You know the what you have in the um, the five aggregates is similar. You, you've got a you, you know it's, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to find well what's an exact dividing line between coarse sand and fine sand or what's 
fine gravel and coarse gravel and, and there's there's a lot of overlap between the areas so uh, one of the reasons I feel that the Buddha uses the kind of everyday terminology uh, is that these are, are, are rough divisions a kind of a, a um, uh, uh, ordinary everyday languaging rather than you know what is precisely this kanda that distinguishes it exactly from everything else and what you know, where's the the uh, dividing line between this uh, and, and that and uh, the whole way of expression lends a sense well this is a rough way of slicing the pie it's not uh, anything that has to be uh, uh, say super precise or uh, ultra technical then also in uh, in his terminology so rupa means form or the body the material uh, world vedana he has his feelings uh, he translates sanya here as cognition and uh, i think he's uh, following um uh, peter harvey in that the respect in that respect so sanya is mostly translated as perception and then when the Buddha's defining it, or when you get it defined in the suttas, it says that... Uh, and let's see if I can find a convenient, handy-dandy description, which I might be able to do in the uh, Chula Vedala Sutta. Let's see. Or maybe it's the Mahavedala Sutta. The greatest series of questions and answers, I think, is a convenient place. Um, yeah. <clears throat> perception, perception, it is said, friend, with uh, with reference to what is perception said. So this is sanya, sanya, it is said, friend, with reference to what is uh, sanya said. It perceives, it perceives, friend. And this is a dialogue between Venerable Sariputta and uh, Venerable Mahakotita. It perceives blue, it perceives yellow, it perceives red, it perceives white. It perceives, it perceives, friend, that's why it's called perception. <laughs> Also, in that same little inter, uh, exchange, uh, the interaction between the, the two, it says um, feeling, perception, and consciousness. So, Vedana, Sanya, and Vijnana. Feeling, perception, and consciousness, friend, are these states conjoined or disjoined? And is it possible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them? So, as I was saying about the overlap between these different areas, different khandas. And then uh, Venerable Sariputta responds, Feeling, perception, and consciousness, friend, these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them. For what one feels, that one perceives. And what one perceives, that one cognizes. That is why these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the others in order to describe the difference between them. So, uh, uh, an example I often give is say you can say, well, this is water, and this water has temperature, it has um, taste, albeit very subtle, it has viscosity there's the, the 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 what holds the water together in a particular form um, it has you know the feeling of wetness you you can say well the, the temperature and the wetness are not the same but you can't just take the wetness out of the water you can talk about wetness wetness is not the same as temperature temperature is not the same as viscosity 
you can say viscosity begins with a V. Yeah, it's a kind of technical word. Temperature begins with a T. It's a different thing. It's about heat. So that you can define them as being separate. Viscosity, temperature, wetness. But you can't just take the viscosity out and leave the temperature and the wetness. You can't take the taste away and say that there is no temperature. Yeah. You can't take the, the wetness out of it and say, oh, here's, here's water, but just with the viscosity and the temperature. Yeah, it doesn't have any meaning. But you can talk about those, those different qualities. So that uh, it's a helpful way to understand how the five khandhas overlap and interrelate. And so if you're interested in this, this is the greatest series of questions and answers, sutta number 43 in the middle length discourses. Many different, many useful um, uh, little pieces in there. Okay, so to continue. Uh, so he has sanya as cognition, so that's relating to the, um, in a way, the naming aspect. The word, the English word sign or designation uh, is related to sanya. So he has it as cognition, which relates it more to thinking, but it's, you can say that the sanya is um, sort of that, the naming of an experience, but uh, I, I'm not particularly comfortable with calling it cognition because it it misses out the fact that that um, perceiving, and as it says there, you, you wouldn't say, I cognize red, I cognize blue, you know, you, the ordinary English word perception is, is related to seeing colors or tastes or whatever. So that, um, personally, I feel uh, perception is, is a better term than cognition, but he explains his own reasons uh, for using it. Then Sankara, uh, he has as volitions, which is certainly uh, accurate to some degree, um, and the, the word sankara, sung, the, the, the particle sung means together or, or joined, uh, so like sangha, the, 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 uh, an assembly, a group. So, and then kara, kara comes from uh, to make or to compound or to put together, karoti, to, to do or to make. They're so sankara is like put together, so sometimes a sankara is like uh, all compounded things are impermanent, all conditioned things. So uh, and in the the classical images of the um, the the Baba Chakra, the wheel of birth and death, then Sankara is represented by a potter, like someone with a with a clay and a potter's wheel making a making a pot. So that forming and compounding. Uh, uh, again, as he, he explains a little bit later, uh, the the meaning of the term Sankara is is more ex became more expansive than that so usually the things like emotions thoughts memories ideas that uh, i would all consider comes under the the, the heading of of uh, sankara kanda that the um, mental formations group and in our own chanting book we translate that um, sankara as mental formations but the the most accurate word for sankara in english is thing a thing. If it's a thing, it's a sankara. If it's a sankara, it's a thing. <laughs> so it's a very, very broad term. Um, and uh, so you can pick. In this instance, he's picking up on that, the volition, the, the sort of the, the doingness or the, the put putting togetherness of it. But you can you can use the term in, in a very large variety of of ways. And so it's one of those uh, in China when they. Uh, the Kumarajiva, a great translator, um, was given the responsibility for translating the Tripitaka into Chinese, and they had like something like 800 
translators working together to to put the whole canon um, from Sanskrit into into Chinese. There was a few terms that the Chinese and the Chinese are very um, proud of their own language and it's it's all encompassing nature. But there was I think five terms that they decided that were untranslatable, and so they just introduced them into into Chinese. And Sankara was one of those, and I think Vinyana uh, was another, and uh, Tathagata. Uh, was was another. I'd have to look up the, the the detail of it, but it's it's got a, such a particular and broad range of meanings in the in the scriptural sense that you you can't really find a single uh, say English word um, to uh, to render it. So in this respect, he's using volitions, but uh, it, I would say it, it also encompasses you know, thought, memory, ideas, imagination. So not just. Uh, uh, the mental realm uh, with respect to uh, uh, intention, uh, intentional activity, uh, uh, and the, the kind of driving force of, of volition, or the, the wishing or intending, but also you know, uh, thought and, and uh, ideas and so on. So uh, again, uh, cog you know, the word, English word cognition would be more relating to thinking. So there's a bit of an overlap there. So just uh, so uh, it's not too confusing for for people he's using the terms sanya and and sankara to sort of cover that range of perception and thought and and volition and that the, he's using a dividing line in a slightly different place than than say uh, we would tend to use in in this particular tradition and the teachings of uh, ajahn charge and Sumedho foreign the forest tradition uh, of a general expression of things then <clears throat> to continue. Underlying the above instructions are two stages of contemplation. Clear recognition of the nature of each aggregate, followed in each case by awareness of its arising and passing away. I will first attempt to clarify the range of each aggregate. Then I will examine the Buddha's teaching of anatta within its historical context in order to investigate the way in which the scheme of the five aggregates can be used as an analysis of subjective experience. After that, I will consider the second stage of practice, which is concerned with the impermanent and conditioned nature of the aggregates. Clearly recognizing and understanding the five aggregates is of considerable importance, since without fully understanding them and developing detachment from them, it will not be possible to gain complete freedom from dukkha. Indeed, detachment and dispassion regarding these five aspects of subjective personality leads directly to realization. And he quotes a few references that uh, that's described. Also, uh, it's notable that he uses the terms like subjective experience, subjective personality. So the, the model of the five khandas is very much talking about the how the feeling of I and me in in the world is sort of how my my world is is made up and how um, the the mind creates that what we call self view or the the the, um, the sense of I am the body I am the personality this is who and what I am um, so he he uses that uh, subjective personality or subjective experience and and he focuses on the five khandas as how that uh, self view when the five khandas are grasped and not understood, how that feeds into self-view and how when they are understood and not identified with, then how that 
helps to lead beyond self-view. So I feel that's a very helpful way of speaking about the the five khandhas as the sort of uh, fabric that the the uh, uh, conceit and self-view are, are built out of. The discourses and the verses composed by awakened monks and nuns record numerous cases where a penetrative understanding of the true nature of the five aggregates culminated in full awakening. And again, he quotes a number of, of um, passages where that's, uh, that is uh, the case in, in the suttas and also in the Teragata, Terigata. These instances highlight the outstanding potential of this particular Satipatthana contemplation. These five aggregates are often referred to in the discourses as the five aggregates of clinging, Panchupadana Kanda. In this context, aggregate, Kanda, is an umbrella term for all possible instances of each category, whether past, present or future, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, near or far. And so that and that collection of qualities, those adjectives, um, when we recite the uh, uh, Anatalakana Sutta, that's the Ajatawa, Bahidava, Olare Kangwa, Sukumangwa, Hinangwa, Panitangwa, Yandure, Santikewa. That's all um, inside, outside, gross and subtle, inferior, superior, near and far. That's describing that. So um, the body or feelings, perceptions, whether it's inside or outside, whether it's this body or well, material form outside, uh, coarse or fine, uh, inferior or superior, uh, it's in every dimension of those, those qualities. The qualification clinging, upadana, refers to desire and attachment in regard to these aggregates. Such desire and attachment in relation to the aggregates is the root cause for the arising of dukkha. And again, in the helpful collection of questions and answers, um, but this is in the, the shorter series of questions and answers, which is the next sutta, sutta number 44 in the Majima. And this is a dialogue between the uh, enlightened nun Dhammadina and her former husband Visaka. And so Visaka is coming to uh, ask his uh, former wife and now enlightened nun uh, some dumber questions. And he asks, Lady, is that clinging the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging? Or is the clinging something apart from the five aggregates affected by clinging? So is the upadana, is it part of that, the upadana khandas, or is it something separate from that? And she responds, Friend Visaka, that clinging is neither the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging, nor is clinging something apart from the five aggregates affected by clinging. It is the desire and lust in regard to the five aggregates affected by clinging that is the clinging there. So it's a, it's a frequently asked question. So the... Uh, and, and the um, the, that term upadana khandas uh, is been translated and rendered in various different ways. We had it in the chanting book as the the five focuses of the grasping mind um, uh, for a while, and uh, the um, uh, w the current version is um, 
five focuses of identity. So it's that the where the the feeling of I I am the body I am these thoughts I am these perceptions I am my feelings uh, these are me this is this is mine this is who and what I am and um, actually in that very next uh, section here which is helpful um, Visaka asks um, uh, the bhikkhuni Dhammadina lady how does personality view come to be and she says here friend Visaka an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma, regards material form as self or as self as possessed of material form or material form as in self or, as, or self as in material form. He regards feelings as self or self as possessed of feeling or feeling as in self, or self as in feeling. He regards perception as self, or self as possessed of perception, or perception as in self, or self as in perception. He regards formations as self, or self as possessed of formations, or formations as in self, or self as in formations. He regards consciousness as self, or self as possessed of consciousness, or consciousness as in self, or self as in consciousness. That is how personality view comes to be. Then uh, he asks, well, lady, how does personality view not come to be? And she just says, well, the opposite. <laughs> the, that, that person does not regard form as being, um, as possessing, uh, uh, does not regard material form as self, or self as in material form, does not regard feeling as self, or self as possessed of feeling, and so on. So that, again, that's Sutta number 44 in the Majjhima, so that's uh, some helpful dialogues there. It's also interesting that the word upadana mean, doesn't mean cling, doesn't just mean uh, clinging, it also means fuel, like the fuel for a fire is upadana. It's the same, same word. So like the fuel for, for identity, the fuel for rebirth, the fuel for, for beingness is upadana, is clinging. And when the Buddha is asked by Vachagota, when when one life comes to an end and the next and before the next life begins, what is it that sustains a being between those lives? And the Buddha says, well, like a when when you have a forest fire and the flames leap from one tree to another tree, that the fire is sustained by air, by the oxygen. Uh, when one life comes to an end and then the ne- before the next life begins, that the the being is sustained. Uh, tanupadana is what he says. Is uh, uh, craving is the fuel. Tanha is the upadana. Tanha, tanupadana. The craving is the fuel. So that if you like, force of habit is the that's what sustains a quote unquote being from one life to the next. The sequence of these five aggregates leads from the gross physical body to increasingly subtle mental aspects. So as I was saying, like from the the sort of the coarse rubble, the, the kind of broken bricks to the coarse gravel, fine gravel, coarse sand, fine sand, so like from, a, from the coarse uh, rupa to the to the finest um, uh, gradation of, of vinyana. It's like a spectrum going from the coarse to the refined. From gross physical body to increasingly subtle mental aspects. The first of the aggregates, material form, rupa, 
is usually defined in the discourses in terms of the four elementary qualities of matter, so earth, water, fire, and wind, or, uh, or um, solidity, uh, fluidity, or cohesion, uh, vibration, and temperature. A discourse in the Kanda Sanghita explains that material form, rupa, refers to whatever is affected, rupati, by external conditions such as cold and heat and hunger and thirst. Uh, he also points out that rupa uh, and rupati are not actually etymologically connected, but the, the, uh, the Buddha um, often used word plays um, to, to illustrate uh, things in, in that kind of a way. So also, before I go on to say a bit more about the different individual khandas, there's an interesting note about the, the expression of the five khandas um, uh, and where that comes from. The expression of five aggregates, Panchupadana khanda, seems to have been easily intelligible in ancient India, since it occurs in the Buddha's first discourse, the Dhammachaka Sutta, apparently without, without any need for elaboration or explanation. Similarly, uh, in Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the five aggregates form part of a description of the Buddha's teaching to, this, uh, to the disputer Sachaka, who was a, uh, a Brahmin um, sort of Dharma um, aficionado and teacher and sort of professional arguer, debater, who was presumably unfamiliar with Buddhism, but appears to have readily understood what was being said, involving the five khandas. This suggests that the five aggregate scheme might have already existed, uh, have been in existence at the time of Gautama Buddha. Since the discourses also include contemplation of the five aggregates in their description of the awakening of the ancient Buddha Vipassi, from eons past, it seems that from their perspective too, the scheme of the five aggregates was known before the advent of Gautama Buddha. And Shtarbatsky mentions parallels to the aggregates in this pattern in the Brahmanas and the Upanishads. Uh, and according to Warder, a.k.a. Warder, who's a Pali scholar, the aggregates were a known concept also amongst the Jains and also possibly amongst the Ajivakas, which are other... Um, groups of, of yogis and uh, um, spiritual uh, wanderers, summoners in the time of the Buddha. So before I carry on, any questions or thoughts, reflections? Okay. <clears throat> so uh, about uh, rupa um, being not just material form, but uh, whatever is affected by external conditions, such as cold and heat, hunger and thirst, mosquitoes and snakes, emphasizing the subjective experience of rupa as a central aspect of this aggregate. So it's not just rupa as material form, but the experience of rupa is what they're pointing to. Like the, 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 uh, the, the, the experience or the, the uh, cognizing of material form. Next in the sequence of the aggregates come feeling, vedana, and cognition, sanya which represent the affective and the cognitive aspects of experience. So and there, so he particularly highlights Sanya as a sort of thinking side of it. Uh, 
In the context of the process of perception, cognition, sanya, is closely related to the arising of feeling, both depending on stimulation through the six senses by way of contact, passa. The standard presentations in the discourses relate feeling to the sense organ, but cognition to the respective sense object. This indicates that feelings are predominantly related to the subjective repercussions of an experience, while cognitions are more concerned with the features of the respective external object. That is, feelings provide the how and cognitions the what of experience. So, uh, I see the white colour of Anagarika Volta's blanket and it makes me feel pleased because he's obviously skilled at laundry. <laughs> so there's a, the feeling of happiness, the sanya, the perception is the experience of whiteness. Maybe I should put my glasses on and could see. Them. The, 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 so the sanya is the, the, the object side of it and then the, the uh, Vedana reflects more the, the feeling side of it. To speak of a cognition, quote-unquote, of an object refers to the act of identifying raw sensory data with the help of concepts or labels, such as when one sees a colored object and recognizes, re-cognizes, recognizes it as yellow, red, or white, etc. <coughs> cognition, to some extent, involves the faculty of memory, which furnishes the conceptual labels used for recognition. And there's a whole massive field about uh, that uh, you can look at in terms of um, Buddhist psychology and uh, Western psychology as well about how the mind perceives things, how we label things, these, um, uh, how um, if you have grown up in the northern latitudes, you know, that famously um, people, the Inuit um, tribal people have 23 different words for snow, uh, whereas if you grow up in the Sahara, you don't have a word for snow. <laughs> uh, or um, the, uh, uh, they say in, um, amongst the, uh, the Hopi, um, Native American tribe in the, the live in the New Mexico, Arizona area, they have similarly a huge range of words to describe different kinds of browns and yellows and, and ochres and such like. Um, but one word that covers all green and blue. So that there's, there's only one word for all greens and blues. And uh, the, uh, but there's a, a, like a, a whole lexicon of, of browns. And so that the way that we perceive things uh, is uh, memory, language, these are all uh, very much uh, conditioned. So that's all under the, the, um, the, the category of sanya kanda. In the, the discourse called the, the Sweet Morsel, the Madhupindika Sutta, which is Sutta number 18 in the Majjhima Nikaya, then it, it outlines the, the process of, uh, of um, perception and experience uh, um, in a very clear and specific way. And it, uh, first of all, it starts off with sense contact, the pasa, there's the, and the, uh, the sense object, uh, is uh, is uh, say that light comes from a material object enters the eye the meeting of the light and the eye and the arising of eye consciousness that's called pasa that's contact the meeting of the three is pasa contact so then the contact then leads to feeling 
after pasa that leads to feeling. So before anything else, there's a, a like or a dislike or a neutral feeling, and that re- also reflects our ancestry from several uh, hundred thousand years, million years of conditioning um, from when uh, our, uh, our kind of first animal ancestors back in the uh, 640 million years ago, at the beginning of animal life, when our first ancestors, animal ancestors were like sea cu- cucumbers and sponges and such like, then uh, the even at the most basic level of experience, there was uh, like, don't like. Like, go towards, don't like, go away. Yeah. And you know, you can, even on a, a monocellular level, you can see that uh, that's the way even like little plants like amoeba and plankton function like uh, good move towards bad get away you know can i can i eat it is it going to eat me can i mate with it a, and so even though we might consider human life is a lot more refined than that uh, much of our human world functions around those the same kind of impulses so that contact leads to feeling and then only after feeling does the, the sanya come in, the, the, uh, the, the kind of cognition of, oh, that's white, or that's blue, or this is a book. Uh, <clears throat> so there's the sanya, but that's before it's even been named by language, he would say. And uh, the vitaka is, oh, this is the Satipatthana book, or that's Walter's uh, uh, white rap. So the vitaka uh, comes in and, and names the experience, or says, so you, you know the, the, the color, and then the thinking mind comes in and says, blue. But you know what the color is before you say blue. So the sanya is in a, a way before the, the verbal naming of an experience. But again, they, there's, uh, they, they work together, or there's, there's not a fixed dividing line. But, so you have contact, feeling, uh, sanya, perception, and then vitaka, thinking. And then the vitaka leads to conceptual proliferation in that that Madhupindika Sutta. But in that in terms of what he's talking about here, it, it describes very very well that relationship between contact, feeling and perception. You know, Vedana and Vedana and Sanya as as part of the Khandas that he groups together here. The fourth aggregate comprises volitions, Sankara representing the co-native aspect of the mind. Co-native? Co-native means um, what you do about something. So, uh, so it's a... um, Let's see, I've got the dictionary definition here. How one acts on thoughts and feelings is what co-native means. These volitions or intentions correspond to the reactive or purposive aspect of the mind, that which reacts to things or their potentiality. So that having seen um, good, like, then, ooh, I'll have some more of that. So that's, that's Sankara he, uh, in his sort of the volition, or like, oh, that's dangerous, that's awful, get away from that. Or that belongs to Walter, I'm not interested in it. And not an anagarika, so white is a boring color to me. Yeah, neutral feeling. So, <clears throat> so he focuses on that volitional aspect of of sankara, that kind of motivation. In that, in the English word motive, it means movement, like motion, motive, 
the, the moving of the mind towards a, a, a goal. The aggregate of volitions and intentions interacts with each of the aggregates and has a conditioning effect upon them. In the subsequent developments of Buddhist philosophy, the meaning of this term, Sankara, expanded until it came to include a wide range of mental factors. And uh, so that, as I said, so Sankara is generally uh, understood and used nowadays to refer to thoughts and feelings, emotions, uh, elation, depression, um, uh, say, um, memories, imagination, all of that would come under the, the, uh, sort of, uh, the general heading of, of Sankara, mental formations. The fifth aggregate is consciousness, vijnana. Although at times the discourse, the discourses use consciousness, quote-unquote, to represent mind in general, in the context of the aggregate classification, it refers to being conscious of something. And he gives a substantial note on this. Um, he says, uh, a typical instance is the expression, this body with consciousness, savinyanake kaye. So this body together with its consciousness, the, you know, the, the, the physical body and the mind that goes along with it. So that refers to vinyana is just the, the mental dimension, so, uh, like the, the, all of the namakandas, the kind of mental world. And so, and then he quotes a passage from the Sangita where, uh, where consciousness stands for all four mental aggregates, like all of the Namakandas. Um, then, in, in another passage in the Diganikaya and also in the Sangita, use consciousness, vijnana, on a par with the two Pali terms, citta and mano, all three referring to mind, quote unquote, in this context. Bhikkhu Bodhi, in uh, the um, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, aptly clarifies the implications of these three Pali terms, mano, citta, and vijnana, uh, in the discourses. And this is one of these questions people have been asking about for, for donkey's years. And uh, it's right there in, in that, that sutta. It's in the um, uh, Kandavaga, the Connected Discourses about the Five Kandas, the Kandavaga, and uh, it's sutta number 61. I looked up. Vijnana signifies the particularizing awareness through a sense faculty, as well as the underlying stream of consciousness which sustains personal continuity through a single life and threads together with successive lives. Mano serves as the third door of action along with body and speech, and as the sixth internal sense base. Chitta signifies mind as the center of personal experience, as the subject of thought, volition, and emotion. A detailed survey of differences in the usage of these three terms in the discourses can be found in Johansson, uh, who's a Pali scholar and translator in uh, the, uh, one of his books. So uh, I'm fully aware that, the, that you might be thinking, what, I didn't quite get that? Uh, how, how does that work? But the, uh, these have been terms that are, have been sort of puzzled over uh, for the last two and a half thousand years. And uh, they are used in slightly different ways in, in, 
sometimes interchangeable, sometimes as distinct from each other. But if you want to look up that particular discourse and this note, it's uh, it's in the uh, Connected Discourses, um, the uh, Kandavaga section, uh, the 12th section, Sutra number 61. And uh, also there's a, um, a book by Sue Hamilton, which is called... Thank you very much. I knew someone would know. Uh, Identity and experience, which um, say relates uh, to uh, and talks about those in a very helpful way. She's a very good uh, Buddhist scholar, and uh, so identity and experience by Sue Hamilton. The act, this act of being conscious, is most prominently responsible for providing a sense of subjective cohesiveness. Again, he's using that subjective um, adjective there to uh, refer to how the five khandhas uh, kind of hold together the feeling of I. <clears throat> so uh, the act of, this act of being conscious is most prominently responsible for providing a sense of subjective cohesiveness for the notion of a substantial I behind experience. So um, when we talk about um, at, uh, identification with consciousness, you know, when we in the chanting we say uh, attachment to consciousness or identification with consciousness, that in in a simple and an easy way to understand, that's the that's the belief. I'm thinking, I'm hearing, I'm experiencing the dumb reading, I'm talking, uh, uh, I am listening, I am feeling, I, I am understanding, I am not understanding. All those I am's. That's attachment to consciousness. That's the the uh, I'm the experiencer. I'm the one who's um, I'm the one who's understanding. I'm the one who's doubting. Uh, I am remembering what he just said. I'm wondering where what the, the next thing might be. Uh, all those that that's attachment to consciousness. I'm the one who's feeling. I'm the one who's choosing. I'm the one who is remembering. All those um, is essentially. Um, uh, identification with consciousness, the the attachment, um, and saying, "Yeah, this is a me. This is a me. I, I'm the one who's feeling. I'm the one who's remembering. I'm the one who's hearing." It's there's a me here who is the 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 doer, the experiencer, the actor, the chooser, the rememberer. There's that is uh, identification with consciousness. So that I find is the most helpful way of of understanding that uh, that the the uh, that term. And and also as the the teachings encourage that it's a lot of insight and the development of of the uh, wisdom and as he goes into talking about anatta later on, it's about letting go of that identification with consciousness. No, there's 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 hearing. There's not a person who's the hearer. There's a remembering. There's not a, a person who's remembering. There's there's doing, but there's not a person who's the doer, um, and that. That uh, letting go of, of identification with consciousness um, is so. Letting go of identification with, with perception is kind of easy. It's like, well, um, I don't own the color of, of Walter's rap. I don't feel like that's a possession of mine. You don't feel like you own the sound of my voice, right? I don't feel like I own the color of the carpet. It's like, no, it's just the carpet. But I feel, I feel like I own. This body, I, I own these thoughts, I own these words, I own the impression that, that you make on me. Uh, and I, 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 I definitely have that sense of 
oh yeah, that's that's me talking. It's me choosing these words. It's me doing the explaining. It's me who can can feel my my leg on the the chair. Yeah, that's that's me. So that uh, uh, what he's saying here is that's the most kind of cr- uh, crunchy kind of uh, the the most densely grained aspect of of the khandas, where the uh, the uh, that identification with experience, but also when that is we use anatta, the insight into not self, it's to to sort of break up that aggregation, that that kind of um, solidity, that the feeling of I am the doer, I am the feeler, I am the experiencer. Now consciousness depends on the various features of experience supplied by name and form, namarupa, just as name and form in turn depend on consciousness as their point of reference. And he has his footnote on this, the importance of this conditional interrelation, so namarupa and vijnana, is highlighted in the Mahanidana Sutta, in the Diga Nikaya, also in the Sangyuta, where the Buddha Vipassi and the Buddha Gautama, respectively, both still at the Bodhisattva stage at that, at that point, on investigating dependent co-arising up to this reciprocal relationship between consciousness and name and form. They both concluded, so uh, Buddha Gautama and the Buddha Vipassi, that I have found the path of insight leading to awakening. So how um, consciousness, vijnana, and then namarupa, um, how they, um, they relate to each other. This conditional interrelationship creates the world of experience, with consciousness being aware of phenomena that are being modified and presented to it by way of name and form. So and again, a kind of easy way to, to think of this is, and also the, the, um, the very uh, wise and um, skilled Dhamma uh, teacher and writer called Bhikkhu Nyanananda calls this the Nama Rupa Vijnana Vortex, so that this is sort of a like a, a whirlpool, um, a, a kind of interrelatedness of, on the one hand, vijnana is the kind of subject side, the experiencer, and the namarupa is the experienced, the object. So that sort of the, the sense of me here in the world out there, or me here watching these thoughts in, in the inner world, uh, that's the uh, that's spun out of the, the interaction of namarupa and vijnana. So the, the vijnana reflects the subject side, namarupa uh, uh, reflects the object side. And so <clears throat> with um, uh, the, the kind of strengthening of the vortex, it goes from uh, as soon as there is ignorance, avijja, then that, uh, as soon as there's not seeing clearly, then that that's, that forms the, the seed or the, the division between a subject here and an object there. There's a me who's experiencing this, the world, or a me who's watching, who's, who's feeling this emotion. And then the, the more that's, uh, that, that uh, there's ignorance, that not seeing clearly, and it happens, this happens very, very fast, then the vortex gets going, and then there's me here perceiving the world out there, and I like that, I don't like that, this is good, I want more of that, that's great. And, the mind chases after it. There's a me here, there's a world out there. So that these teachings on dependent origination, also the teachings I was describing in the the uh, Madhupindika Sutta, the um, Sutta number 18 in the Majima, they, they're uh, all talking about this sense of how 
the, uh, out of ignorance we create me here and the world out there and the tension between them and when there's no ignorance then that's breaking down the subject-object division so in many respects the development of insight is the development of a subjectless objectless awareness okay? a knowing that's free of a concrete subject and object um, and this uh, relationship between namarupa and vijnana uh, and as it says in um, in some of these expressions like these uh, the um, mahanidana sutta it says consciousness conditions name and form name and form conditions consciousness they they tu- it turns back on it as the expression is in the sutta it turns back upon itself so it, it's uh, they they lean upon each other another image that's used is like two bundles of reeds that, that sort of lean on each other like it's making a, a, a stook of, of corn that they that namarupa and vinyana consciousness and, and namarupa they lean on each other they support each other so they, these different images are all re- reflecting how that me here the world out there the subject and object become concrete until of course i'm here in the world's out there yeah of course the whole world understands that but it's talking about how that forms and becomes apparently solid so these are not easy things to to understand uh, but also this is a, a a good area to to reflect upon so again the mahanidana sutta i think it's uh diganikaya sutta number 15 i think at the top of my head um but the, yeah it's the great discourse on causation in the long discourses but uh, it takes a bit of reflecting and considering okay subject what's this, what does subjectivity feel like the the that which is the 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 knower the knower object the known okay that's the feeling of that over there and the, this here there's a this knowing of that okay <laughs> and just getting a feeling for how those work and then when there's insight when there's clear seeing oh then the, the, there's no this and that there's just hearing feeling uh, seeing smelling tasting touching then he goes in to give a good illustration to provide a practical illustration of the five aggregates during the present act of reading for example consciousness is aware of each word through the physical sense door of the eye or hearing you know <laughs> you can translate this into hearing yeah. since you're listening rather than reading <clears throat> the physical sense door of the eye cognition sanya understands the meaning of each word while feelings vedana are responsible for the affective mood liking disliking neutral feeling whether one feels positive negative or neutral about this particular piece of information because of volition one either reads on or stops to consider a passage in more depth or even refers to a footnote or goes to make a cup of tea whatever so that's a, a helpful little illustration the discourses describe the characteristic features of these five aggregates with a set of similes and this is from um, again from the Kandavaga the, the connected discourses on uh, the five Kandas which is the, the twelfth twelfth section of the connected discourses and this is Sutta number 95 uh, called the lump of foam so these compare material form to the insubstantial nature of a lump of foam carried away by a river 
and uh, the original sutta, the Buddha, they're, they're standing by the, the river um, at a place called Ayodhya, and the, they see this lump of foam on the river, and the Buddha starts his discourse by saying, you know, monks, you see that lump of foam on the river? Rupa is just like a, a lump of foam. like a, it's, It has a form, but no substance. There's a shape, but no, no a core to it. <coughs> so... Uh, Material form uh, uh, is compared to the insubstantial nature of a lump of foam carried away by a river. Feelings, Vedana, to the impermanent bubbles that form on the surface of water during rain. Cognition, sanya, is compared to the illusory nature of a mirage. So mirage is like a shape in the hot air in a desert when you see palm trees or buildings that are not really there, or, not, or they're much further away and you, you think they're closer. So sanya is compared to a mirage. Volitions, sankara, to the essenceless nature of a plantain tree. Uh, so plantain is like a banana tree. And like uh, in Europe, we would have a, like a leek um, or an onion that's just layers and layers and layers of leaves where there's no core, there's no trunk, you just peel away the leaves and then there's no there's no onion apart from the leaves so uh, a, a banana trees are the same so volitions are compared to the essenceless nature of a plantain tree because it has no heartwood and consciousness vinyana to the deceptive performance of a magician like a conjurer who um, pulls rabbits out of a hat or or um, cuts people in half and then puts them back together again such like so each of those there's a form, but no substance. So that, like a bubble uh, from the rain, or a lump of foam, uh, a mirage, uh, or a conjuring trick. Uh, there's a, a form, there's a shape, but there's no core, there's no heart, there's no essence. So each one of the, those five have that same kind of quality. This set of similes points to the central characteristics that need to be understood with regard to each aggregate. In the case of material form, contemplating its unattractive and insubstantial nature corrects mistaken notions of substantiality and beauty. Concerning feelings, awareness of their impermanent nature counteracts the tendency to search for pleasure through feelings. With regards to cognition, sanya, Awareness of its deluding activity uncovers the tendency to project one's own value judgments onto external phenomena as if these were qualities of the outside objects. With volitions, sankara, insight into their selfless nature corrects the mistaken notion that willpower is the expression of a substantial self. Regarding consciousness, understanding its deceptive performance counterbalances the sense of cohesiveness and substantiality it tends to give to what in reality is a patchwork of impermanent and conditioned phenomena. In this, this uh, little description, he's going through each one of those, like the lump of foam, uh, uh, saying you know, it's, it's insubstantial and uh, not intrinsically beautiful. Then the feelings, um, the, the bubble, you know, when rain falls onto a, a pond or a body of water, then it forms a, like a spherical bubble for a, a moment. Uh, that, uh, with regards to 
to feelings, awareness of their impermanent nature, like a bubble, it just is very, very brief. That uh, uh, impermanent nature of, of feelings is counteracts the tendency to search for pleasure through them. Sanya, cognition, uh, so that was the, the mirage, the, uh, the uh, awareness of its deluding activity. The, the oasis is not just over there, a hundred yards away, but it's actually five miles away. It's a deluding, uh, give, giving a delusory impression. Then Sankara, that was the plantain tree, the, the, like the, the onion or the leek, the layers of the onion. Um, insight into their selfless nature that you keep peeling away leaves and you, you don't get to a trunk. Uh, the selfless nature corrects the mistaken notion that willpower is the expression of a substantial self. Well, there's something being done, so there must be, there must be somebody who's doing it. There's something, uh, there's choices being made, so there must be me who's a chooser. Uh, and so that then that uh, is pointing to that, well, you can say there's volition, there's perception, there's there's choice, but you can't, when you look for the person or the, the I that is the chooser, the doer, the actor, you, you can't find any uh, substantial you know, I that is the, the agent. And then regarding consciousness, understanding its deceptive performance counterbalances the sense of cohesiveness and substantiality. So a conjurer makes um, something appear to happen. Um, usually they're cutting people in half rather than, than well, they put them together later on. But they, they start off by cutting, cutting you know, sawing people in two. Or, or um, It's a conjuring trick that, uh, that says there is this cohesive and permanent eye that um, is, say, the... the ongoing agent and doer and experiencer of, of all things in life. Owing to the influence of ignorance, these five aggregates are experienced as embodiments of the notion, I am. <coughs> From the unawakened point of view, the material body is where I am. Again, he goes through each of the five khandhas and, and has a different um, helpful I think he does this very, very well in, in both using the images that are there in the um, Lump of Foam Sutta, but also in his these different kinds of, of um, conceiving the, the, um, the way that the mind creates the, the self-idea. So, from the unawakened point of view, the material body, Rupa, is where I am. Rupa, in a three-dimensional space, only relates to the material world, um, the, the body defines where I am. Feelings are how I am. I am happy, I'm unhappy, I'm, I'm neutral. Cognitions are what I am, perceiving. Volitions are why I am, acting. And consciousness is whereby I am, like where I've come from and, and how, I, how I come to be. How, whereby I am experiencing. In this way, each aggregate offers its own contribution to enacting the reassuring illusion that I am. So that, uh, so the body, where I am, feelings, how I am, cognitions, what I'm perceiving, volitions, why I am acting, and consciousness, whereby I am experiencing. So again, that takes a little bit of contemplation. Yes, Jinta. It is indeed. That's him. So he can put his copyright on that. Very, 
very handy uh, interpretation and uh, um, so that's very well put and you know, very succinct by laying bare these five facets of the notion I am this analysis of subjective personality again using the subjective quality there this analysis of subjective personality into aggregates singles out the component parts of the misleading assumption that an independent and unchanging agent inheres in human existence, thereby making possible the arising of insight into the ultimately selfless anatta nature of all aspects of experience. So by laying bare and, and sort of highlighting these different aspects of of how the I am illusion gets formed, then it, it you know, supports a, a deepening of the insight into the ultimately selfless nature of it, all aspects of experience. In order to assess the implications of the aggregate scheme, a brief examination of the teaching of Anatta against the background of the philosophical positions in existence in ancient India will be helpful at this point, but not today. So that's a, that's a very, um, uh, I think, um, clear and, uh, and useful, practical way of say, highlighting the, the Buddha's use of, of the five khandhas. And then the, the first uh, formulation, or the first time he employed this, was right in the, um, the, what's known as the second discourse, the Anathalakana Sutta. And that was the discourse that brought about the uh, full enlightenment of his uh, five companions, his five friends. So when he gave the, the Dhammachaka Sutta on the middle way and the Four Noble Truths, only Kandanya understood, and he just he became a stream enterer. The other four didn't understand or didn't have uh, any profound insight. Um, and but when he gave this teaching on the Anatalakana Sutta on the five khandhas and uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, then all five of them became arahants on hearing that discourse. So. It also highlights the the great significance of that uh, this this uh, usefulness of the framework, and also the, um, the the potency of the insight into anatta as a liberating um, uh, quality. It's also as a little footnote. It's interesting that um, the uh, uh, British philosopher David Hume uh, also uh, had insight into anatta way back in the. Um, 18th century by making the, these the kind of comments of uh, so when um, re regardless of of um, what I, what I'm experiencing or doing when uh, whenever I whether I'm thinking or feeling or remembering whether I'm uh, alert or sleepy uh, whether I'm eating or walking or talking or, or, or simply sitting um, uh, in the midst of all of those activities of various different kinds, when I look for the person who is the doer, who is the experiencer, who is the, the agent of such activities, I cannot find anybody there. You know, I know there is thinking and there is feeling and there is there's experiencing, but um, when I look for the, for the, the, the person, the doer, then uh, they, uh, they cannot be found. And so that was uh, David Hume. I can... Uh, uh, I can fish out the exact quote uh, uh, in the future, if need be. But there was, um, uh, there was uh, back in the uh, 18th century, that uh, this uh, European philosopher also had come to the same kind of conclusion. There's a possibility that he had had contact with Buddhist teachings, but it's a 
it's a, a theory. Yes? I'm on whose deathbed somebody was trying to persuade him to convert to Christianity. David Hume? Yes. That gets, it sounds very, very likely. Yeah. Now the, the story goes that the, um, there's a very interesting paper by, written by an American academic called Alison Gopnik, called, um, and it, it's about, you know, was, did David Hume have, uh, um, uh, was he influenced by Buddhism? And it's in the Journal of Hume Studies. And she did some incredible detective work because Hume wrote his treatise on human human nature in this little town in France um, that he sort of lived there, parked himself there for five or six years while he wrote this his sort of great work. He was British, but he chose to, to be living in France to do this. At the same time, there was a, a, a Jesuit seminary, quite an active Jesuit seminary in the same little town in the French countryside. And um, this... Uh, uh, the, one of the, the first missionaries to Tibet, uh, Esposito Desideri, had come back from Tibet and was living in the same town at the same time, writing up his journals about what he had, uh, what he'd learned about Buddhism and Tibetan culture. There's no, uh, there's no evidence of them ever having met, but it was a small town, and Jesuits and philosophers are very chatty people, so you can possibly imagine them running into each other at a cafe or a wine bar or something, or under a tree. Um, and that uh, it's conceivable that, uh, that David Hume got his insight from having t met with Desideri and, and uh, heard some Buddhist teachings. And so it, 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 it's quite it's possible, but certainly the way he expresses himself and his insight into anatta and the way he talks about it in terms of a exploring a experience, from the experiential rather than a sort of theoretical side, he comes at it that is uh, is very similar to the to the sort of the Buddhist approach that it's not that the teachings on anatta are not a philosophical position like I believe there is no self but rather if you look uh, if you look and try and find uh, an anatta uh, you can't uh, you can't discover it or that when you examine experience you know, they you you can't uh, you can't find uh, a, a, a a doer or an agent or an experiencer. So it's like a, it's not a, a theoretical um, approach, but more of a, a pragmatic tool for exploring the, the feeling of I and me and mine and letting it go. And so that Hume seems to approach it from a, a similar angle, from what little I know of that. I don't, Alison Gopnik, does she happen to be the professor at Berkeley? I think she is, yes. She's a professor at Berkeley. In developmental psychology. I don't know, it's just, uh, she wrote this paper in Journal of Hume Studies, and she's, I think she's at UC Berkeley. Anyway, you can, you can look her up. Yeah, I... You know, the, the, the paper is, is um, if you just Gopnik um, Hume Buddhism, you'll, if you Google that, you'll, you'll come up with the, the paper. G-O-P-N-I-K, Gopnik. Yeah, I was in one of her classes, but I oh. didn't know that she wrote this paper. Yeah, I was. Uh, so I, I got um, uh, it got pointed out to me from from somewhere, and I thought it, you know, it could be a very flaky theory, but it does make a lot of sense, and, and the the different uh, aspects of the of the story they fit together kind of neatly. In this example, he said, "You see, you see words 
But actually, you, you see shapes which you learn to recognize in school as letters and words. Well, that would be sanya, that you're using memory. So that's the, because also um, the 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 word um, sanya it, it, sometimes it just does mean memory as well, mm-hmm. or it involves that. So it, that's part of that conditioning, so that you you're you're learning those particular shapes carry those sounds or those meanings. So like if you spoke Chinese, you know the the, the ideograms would that you saw would would say oh chair carpet book vinyana. But to someone who can't read Chinese, they don't, and so that uh, that that's all in the sanya kanda, like that, like the kind of uh, how the mind learns particular perceptions, or like the um, the way that that we form the world out of our conditioning and our language. There's another there's an interest another interesting book we have in the library called "Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes," and it's about this. Um, particular tribe in the Amazon called the Piraha and their language their language is very very complex um, in many respects but it's also quite unique they have no concept of number you, you can't, they, they, you can't um, describe number uh, they have um, no fixed words for colors uh, you can't talk about a person unless they are visible. You see, like, as soon as someone's gone through the door, got walked around the corner of the path, there's no way of speaking about someone who's not there. And you can't speak about an incident, an event, that you weren't an eyewitness of. And so it's a, it's a very interesting book written by this Christian missionary who was trying to convert them to Christianity. And so... <laughs> Predictably, he, so he thought well, their language was so weird. It took him years and years to learn the language, but but in learning the language, he had to start thinking like them. So Christianity lost out, uh, but he he became uh, uh, very affected by the um, by the learning the language. And but their their whole worldview was very very different. So it's not like they they were not and they were not intelligent, uh, but they they just things like number had no meaning for them. Time is very, very different, and the, they could see and hear and function very comfortably as a human group. But they just frame the world in, in all sorts of different ways. So he said, "Okay, one fish. Now there's two, so that's two fishes." <laughs> and then puts another, one. and that is fish. <laughs> one. Two, three fishes. This is one fish, and there's two, and then there's three. It's fish. <laughs> it's a fish. And this, uh, they, there was this interesting incident where they were trading with a village up the river, and they and and some of them said, "Look, we think we're being ripped off. You know, those people are not being honest. They're not being fair. And we think this number stuff you're talking about might help us." Mm-hmm. So can you can you teach us how to do this 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 number stuff because it you know this, this this could help us to stop being cheated. So I thought, okay, great, at last. So he got like a half a dozen of the brightest people in the village, and spent about eight months with that with the, the smartest team to to try and get them to understand number. And he said there wasn't a single one of them that could count to ten. After eight months, it just. Had no meaning. There's nothing to hang it on.
So when people say mathematics is the sort of primal language of the universe, or not everywhere. <laughs> okay, that's enough for today. So tomorrow is the half moon day, so there won't be a reading for the next couple of days.